Good morning. And how did you start your morning? If indeed you're even out of the bed yet. And frankly, what's the rush? But if you did hop in the shower, turn it to cold. Think bracing and then go up a notch. This, according to Guru Wim Hof, is good for you. But then again, he did freeze his own eyeballs. So, you know. My eyes, my corneas froze. So it became all a blur. I missed the whole 50 meters swimming breath hold. You saw it under a meter thick ice. That is, and then losing the way. That would be a cause for anybody to think that would be disaster. Or it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. The thought of it is a nightmare. But not with me. I was in control. As your eyeballs froze. But Wim Hof would say that if you want to strengthen your mental resolve, beat stress, fight illness, defy gravity and achieve world domination, okay, not quite, the cold might be the answer. He spoke to Brendan or rather boomed down the line in, it has to be said, a very charming manner. I'm a a 26 world record going into the extreme of the cold to show that the body and the mind are able to do more than what we modern human beings, normal thinking human beings, civilized human beings, with the ability to go to the moon, to Mars, but yet not to be able to guarantee our own happiness, strength, and health. So I think there is a big missing link there, and I'm filling the gap. I'm a scientist of life. That makes me a man who goes where nobody has gone before. And I make it a real because I work with scientists everywhere in the world. It is from being crazy about life to go and uh, to show non-speculatively, beyond any doubt, that we have much more power within us to be owned, to guarantee happiness, strength, and health. That's me. Extraordinary, extraordinary claims there too. Extraordinary claims indeed, and not to oversimplify his theory, but in essence, we've all gotten a bit too comfortable in our centrally heated, insulated lives. But we can change all that by turning the tap. Start with 15 seconds cold shower. And then you, uh, the other day, you go make it 30 seconds. And then every day you increase with 15 seconds. And then when you reach two minutes, that is like an eight days, your, the condition of your vascular system uh, got better. Because gradual cold exposure exercises the muscle tone of the vascular system to become a natural condition. Then it becomes stronger. And then you're able to go, say, for one, two minutes into freezing water. And uh, I, I come out and feel blessed and feel great. Well, that's kind of intriguing. And turns out Wim Hof is some man for one man because as the conversation finished up, turned out this was a big day for him. Do you eat a bit of cake now and again or do you ever go for a beer? Or do you do regular I just stuff? I ate cake. Did you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, it's my birthday today. Wim, you, you never said happy birthday. So, so how did you celebrate? I had, uh, uh, I had the biggest fighters of the world here. I'm 63. I was 63 minutes in icy water. 
That, <laughs> what a man. He's that... not able to do that. <laughs> wow. 63 minutes in icy water. Happy birthday to him. And if all of that makes you want to turn over and wrap the duvet around you, we understand. But it is good to know that there are people out there embracing those kinds of challenges so we don't have to. Here's another one. Greetings from Everest Base Camp in Nepal at 5,362 metres. That's the voice of James McManus who is aiming to climb Everest without oxygen. And when he unzipped the tent to look outside, the view is pretty spectacular, assuming your nose doesn't fall off. Now, I know you're in a, in a tent there, but if you stuck your head outside, what would you see and hear? Uh, so um, all around us is uh, uh, Buddhist prayer flags. In one direction, I can look up at the Kumbu Icefall, um, which is the most dangerous part of the Everest climb. And then down the valley to, to my um, to my left is hundreds and hundreds of tents um, that are filled with climbing Sherpa and international climbers from all over the world. And every every half hour or an hour, Ray, you hear a crash like thunder, which is avalanches um, of uh, snowfall in, in all around us here. So it's an absolutely spectacular place. I'm very privileged to be here. And as he told Ray, climbing without oxygen is not for the faint of heart. Being here, it's much, much tougher to do it without supplementary oxygen. There's lots of little things that um, can go wrong. Like the big, one of the big challenges is the cold um, because without the oxygen, it's much, much colder. So I need a much warmer day than, than the, the, a climber with, with oxygen. Um, it has to be warmer for me because um, the oxygen keeps you warm. You want something at more than minus 35 degrees Celsius. Otherwise, you, you run the risk of um, getting too cold and getting frostbite and having to abandon your summit attempt. But if he does succeed, he will join a very exclusive club of just 216 people. Small, because what he's trying to do is very dangerous. And climbing Everest has not been without its controversies. One of the most dangerous things about climbing Mount Everest is ego and um, lack of respect for the mountain and lack of respect for Sherpa, who have a lot of experience out here. And, um, you know, I'm doing this trip and I'm talking to you on on, um, on national radio and, and some people get fixated on that kind of fame up there and they can cloud your decision. Mm. Um, and I suppose from my perspective, I'm not trying to conquer Mount Everest. I'm going up there to have an attempt. Um, I feel really confident, but very, very humble as well. So, if if it gets to a point where um, it's you know it's not looking good for me, I'm going to turn around because I have uh, family and friends in Ireland, and also my climbing partner and climbing Sherpa sharing. He's got two kids in in uh, in Kathmandu, so it, mm. it is um, you know it's going to be a special feeling to get to the top. Just a mountain. It's just a, it's just a trip. So. The main thing is coming back down, and I think that's something that um, that the dynamic, I suppose, Ray, uh, sometimes between the Sherpa and the Western climber can be um, a little bit clouded. Um, sometimes, you know, the Sherpa are amazing people, but um, sometimes their focus is is to to make their clients happy no matter what. And if that's a if that's a client telling them, I want to go to the top the line between um, customer service and safety can get blurred there. So I think that's something I'm, I'm very, very aware of. Weather permitting, James McManus will ascend Everest on May 27th.
And from ascending into the clouds to descending deep into the ocean on Bowman on Sunday, archive of diver Rory Golden telling Marion Finucane of his journey into the depths to reach the wreck of the Titanic. We left the surface at 10 o'clock and you get into this six-foot sphere, submersible, it's tiny, and you start dropping and there's no sensation of dropping. You're watching a digital uh, depth gauge readout, but you do realise you're, you're dropping because the light starts fading. And after literally a few minutes, you're at 200 metres and it's pitch black. Really? And that's at like 10 minutes to go uh, after that and you're just into complete and utter darkness and you fall for two and a half hours. This is complete dropping. It's like getting the Dublin to Cork train without any view but no sensation of speed. Two and a half hours dropping? Two and a half hours getting to the bottom. Scary? Apprehension, scared a bit, uh, elation that this is actually happening, disbelief that this could be actually occurring to you. More people, Marion, have been to outer space than have been to the depths of the ocean that I've been to. And uh, half past 11 at 2,000 metres, we had our lunch, and we're still falling. Just at about quarter past 12, we started slowing down, they started uh, drop, uh, lowering the ballast and you see the depth gauge coming up, the bottom coming up and you just wonder what you're going to see and it's a bit of a letdown because all you see is this big mud pile, this flat mud and then this huge rat tail fish swam past the, the port unit and it was about six foot long and then you start to see signs of life and you start to see bits of wreckage and you suddenly realise you're getting nearer and nearer and in my case we saw this huge mud bank coming up in front of us and uh, Victor, the Russian pilot, slowed down but he just gently nudged the bank and uh, this great cloud of dust, as you like, fell around us and I thought, I think we're at the bow section and sure enough, we pulled back and came up slowly and the next thing you start to see this wall in front of you and that's when your, your nerves and your the tingle goes down your spine that this is it, you're actually at the world's most famous shipwreck. Wow, that is an amazing adventure and what a description. And that brings us to this week's Drama on One, Marconi and Me by Zoe Cummins. So in theory, if the myth holds, in Marconi's mind, if he could build the right listening device, then any sound could be recovered, any conversation or any concert. He wanted to know what music the orchestra was playing as the Titanic went down. In fact, he was supposed to be on it, but he changed his plans. Just as well, perhaps, as the Marconi telegraphers on board failed to relay a message about icebergs. And so he would have witnessed firsthand the consequences of failed communication. And on the other hand, irony. Perhaps he later thought if he could find the pocket of the world where it was stored, he could listen as far back as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Who could take a census of the sounds that have sounded? Even a fixed mind would find too many footsteps marching, hands clapping, thighs slapping, knees knocking, P's and Q's dropping. Surely they cannot be found again and heard in resolution? My sister says they can be heard again, or still. The earth rotates like a record player. Radio waves ricochet off satellites. Green sleeves on the radio beamed out and back again, bouncing off the metal of my mother's mouth, spirit voices or decaying sounds. Who knows the truth? 
More mystery from the drama on one. Back in a bit. Welcome back. This week saw Russian company Gazprom cutting off supplies to Poland and Bulgaria, leading to accusations of economic blackmail. Claire spoke to senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis and London Times columnist Edward Lucas. This is the death knell for Russia's reputation as a reliable energy supplier. And it's also a warning to Germany um, that if things get even um, more acrimonious, um, they will cut the gas off to Germany. But you know, all European countries are trying to get, um, get rid of their dependency on Russian gas as fast as possible. And this will, I think, just accelerate that, although it will be very, potentially very, very unpleasant in the short term. Yeah, Germany's been on a really sticky wicket since the beginning of this uh, invasion of Ukraine because of its reliance on Russia. This pushes them further into a corner, would you say? I think they're in a corner of their own making. I mean, I was warning German officials more than 15 years ago about their dependency on Russian gas, and they laughed at me. And now they're realising that they've, over the last 10, 15 years, they've increased their dependency on Russia, particularly with the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, uh, not, not yet in operation, Nord Stream 2 pipelines. Um, and nobody made them do this. They did this because they were greedy and they thought cheap Russian gas would be a really handy um, way of fueling their industry and keeping um, local energy prices down while they moved away from nuclear and coal. And um, now they're seeing that this comes as a very heavy fiscal price. And I think it's going to be a nasty shock to Germany, uh, the German economy. Um, next winter as they realise the consequences of the um, past 20 years of naivete and greed. Not holding back there. And as global pressures intensify as the war in Ukraine continues, tempers fray on Tuesday's Live Line. Anne was the opening call. She uses the leisure centre in her local hotel. It is a pool that is free for hotel residents. But she has learned that the hotel is now housing Ukrainian refugees and charging them five euro to go for a swim. They have to pay a fiver. And these are women who obviously went with the clothes on their back and a small suitcase. And I don't think they've got disposable income right now. Prohibitive. And therefore, in my opinion, it's punitive. Why are they not being treated the same as any other resident that would be in the space? Now, would and, be my question. And these people are running for their lives, literally running for their yeah. lives, which is the point the government are making as to why there will be no talk of a cap on people because they are running for their lives and you can't turn people away. However, not everyone agreed. Here's Brian. I'm a, I have a membership at a hotel that I pay... It's a, it's a heavy enough membership, and I pay that after I pay tax on the money, right? So it's, it's a fairly costly affair. I go to the gym there. Everyone else that's in the gym and the pool paid the same membership. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're taking in guests, which I'm also paying for as a, as a member of the state and paying taxes. If they're taking in those people and they're consistent, so every week I go up, those people are there free and I'm paying for them in the pool. I'm going to, I'm going to stop me, member. Well, 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 you know what I say to you, Brian? Shame on yeah. you. Shame on you. Shame on you. Yeah. If that's the extent of your, your thinking about people from Ukraine using no, a that's pool. Not, no, no, you're, you're Shame on you. Shame on you. What's it to you? You're supposed to be independent. No, I'm not. I'm not, not I know you can complain about me to the BAI or whatever. Brian, Brian, what is the problem? What is the, what is the problem with people who are staying if in the hotel? Can I ask I you a question? You're saying you would cancel your membership of a, of a, a private club 
Yes. That would let people in who are resident in the hotel. No, who are, who are staying at the hotel at my expense. Oh, at your I expense, will, is it? If I go to Ukraine as a refugee from Ireland, okay. I would, and they the put me up in a hotel. The chances of that happening, come on, be real. Be real, be real, be real. What, no, what, what is real. it? No, what, what is it? What is it? Are you afraid the pool, was, are you afraid the pool might be overcrowded? Are you going to listen? Are you going to listen to my Yeah, are you going to make, what is your point? Are you just going to talk over me the whole time? What are you afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. I'm saying if I go over there yeah. and I get supported the way they get supported here, I don't expect to be given yeah. uh, a, a table in the restaurant at night. I don't expect oh, Brian. to be given oh, Brian. access to the pool. Where do we stop? What What do you think a trip to Ukraine would be? I supported at, at, Ukraine yesterday. The, I yeah. supported well, what's your, the, I supported but the just, homeless in, uh, I supported no, of the course, homeless in Dublin Absolutely. Brian and Joe going head to head. And earlier, we'd heard from Johnny. I've got a lot of uh, friends I play football with there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've been in, um, in, in Lustenwerner, actually, for, for years in, in the, uh, what you call the, you know, in the Tormund Hotel there where they do the... Direct provision. Direct provision, exactly. Yeah, for yeah. years and years and years. And, um, you know, they just feel like they're being, you know, kicked to the back of the queue, much like the Irish people. So Hang on, hang on, Johnny, come back there now. Back up a bit. Kick to, yeah. the, to the back of the queue by you. Well, I mean, they've been in direct provision for years. And, yeah. and there, is a, there is, as you know, and you've, if you've and, probably heard on this problem, there's a massive you know, campaign to improve what, the, what their facilities, and they are improving, and they're not, not, not fast enough. But, who's, uh, but who's, uh, who's kicking them and the Irish families, you say, to the back of the queue? Who's kicking who to the back of the queue? That was, that's your phrase. Yeah, exactly, because, like... But who? I'm got, asking you, who got, is kicking... You've got families in direct provision. You've got kids yeah. who've grown up in indirect provision for years and years yeah. and years. You've got Irish families who are on housing yeah. waiting list for years yeah. and years and years. All of a sudden, you've got a kind of staffing shortage because of this fake pandemic that was going on the last couple of years. And because of this staffing shortage now, maybe the government needs, uh, you know, maybe, maybe governments across Europe need... People who are in desperate need of work, you know, that seems to be... What does that mean? Um, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Johnny had a theory. What is your theory then about Ukrainians there, coming to Ireland? There is a conflict going on in Ukraine. We're hearing everything, like, uh, Here we every go, day yeah. from uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. But we're not, we're, we're, like, Pass.com has been put offline. Russia Today has been put offline. <laughs> You know, we're a neutral country, and yeah. any neutral country should be have the ability to see both sides of the arguments. Because if you can't look at both sides, then how can you claim to be and neutral? And there is, there is both can sides, of two, two sides of the argument, an invasion. Well, well how do we Gen- know? Because we're not allowed genocide. to see one side. Of course we are. We just... No, we can't. RT, okay, let, let, RT. Com, here we go, here we go, here we go. Yeah, I was, no I, 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 it took you long enough to get to the point, but anyway, we're getting to it. You think yeah, exactly. it's, uh, this we're, whole we're thing... This whole we're thing a, is a conspiracy. This, well, no, we're not neutral when it comes to genocide. The government have made that quite clear. We're not neutral when it comes to we're genocide. We're not neutral when I'm it comes sorry. to genocide, exactly. Yeah. But we, 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 we're, we're, we're neutral in the sense that we should be allowed to look at both sides. You know what I mean? To and who's, see who's, things who's from it? every side in who's, order to decide what our position is. Because at the moment, we're not allowed to... Who's stopping? From every side. Yeah, you, you're getting snippets of what they're telling you, but you're not actually okay, getting any. Okay, okay, okay. Well, you're not, and, getting, you're not and, getting the full picture. From, and, from... Live line on Tuesday.
Which brings us to that interview on Wednesday's drive time between Sarah McInerney and Russian ambassador Yuri Filatov. You just corrected me and called what's going on in Ukraine a special operation and not a war. That's not truthful information, is it? Well, uh, I'm not sure you know what the war is. Certainly, the the kind of uh, military operation uh, which is going on uh, is not a war in a military sense. War is all-out attack, no holds barred. Uh, what we have uh, been engaged is is a very uh, surgical operation aimed to safeguard the Donetsk and Lugansk republics, to deny uh, the Kyiv uh, regime any military capability to continue the genocide, the, the campaign against these republics, which they have been carrying on for eight years. So uh, with this special emphasis of uh, not targeting any civilian infrastructure, any civilian objects. And the atrocities that we've been seeing and hearing about for the past two months, he believes, are false. This is a, a calculated staged provocation which we witnessed in Bucha. The Russian military had nothing to do with the killing of civilians. Uh, we have uh, explained the whole incident in very uh, minor detail. We know, and the president uh, told that to the UN Secretary General just the other day, yesterday, that we know who did it, how they prepared, in what way, and uh, that all be used to bring to justice all responsible. There are realms of eyewitness reports. There's satellite imagery, there's independent journalist reports, all of which point to the atrocities in Busha being committed by the Russian army. There's drone footage showing a Russian Z-marked tank firing at and killing a civilian cycling on a bike. New York Times reporters spent a week there with city officials, coroners, scores of witnesses in Busha. They documented a mother being killed by a sniper while walking with her family to fetch a thermos of tea. A woman held as a sex slave, naked except for a fur coat, locked in a potato cellar before being shot in the head. Two sisters, dead in their home, their bodies left slumped on the floor for weeks. And Russia is claiming, if I understand you correctly, that the Ukrainians did this to themselves. Yes, we, we, we have every reason to believe that the Ukrainian special services and nationalist battalions uh, have been very much involved in staging all that. And, uh, well, what's the point of having me on, on the line? If you want to make statements, you are very welcome and do it uh, without me. Uh, if you want to listen to our point of view, please give me a chance. Go ahead. Now, at this point, the ambassador spoke about the attack on the train station in Cremators. And it's worth playing this exchange in full. It was automatically blamed on the Russian military, only to sort of uh, retract very quickly after it was established that the missile, the tactical missile Tochka U, has been launched from the Ukrainian position uh, and it was uh, absolutely irreputably established by the Western journalists there. You see, the problem is, Ambassador, that the, the Russian government is giving us a version of events that nobody else is giving us. I mean, for example, in, in your recent newsletter, you speak about the liberation of Mariupol. When the Russian army bombed a theatre in Mariupol where civilians were sheltering and where on the ground outside the word children 
was written in letters large enough to be read from space when the Russian army bombed that theatre, who was the Russian army liberating? You know, uh, what makes you think that the Russian army uh, bombed the theatre? Again, I don't you, think so. you are suggesting that Ukrainians are, so. are killing themselves. Uh, because uh, the explosion, as uh, the expert has established, it was inside the theatre. So the explosives have been placed there, and it was not for sure uh, that Russian military had done it since the, uh, the district uh, of Mariupol has okay. been uh, controlled by the Ukrainian forces. Okay, so the Ukrainians killed themselves there again. And and I suppose it's it's the same view from Russia or the same contention from Russia when it comes to the bombing of a maternity hospital in, in Mariupol. This is an attack that was independently verified by AP journalists who were there on the ground, who took harrowing photographs of a pregnant woman on a stretcher that the whole world saw. Those same journalists followed up on that woman in the hospital to find out that she and her unborn baby had died. Is Russia's contention what, that she didn't exist, that the journalists were lying, no, that she, everyone who was she, there were lying? The lady in question did really exist and she afterwards uh, she gave birth and uh, we know that. But we know also that uh, the, 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 the photographer you mentioned, that was a staged uh, photo op with uh, this model, Ukrainian model. She, she was quite okay, mm. but she was... Uh, you know, with lots of makeup, of blood, etc., uh, to to create an Ambassador, impression. I think that I'm sorry. I like. I, I really am sorry to interrupt you. And and we like, as you say, we have invited you on. You're very welcome on the program this evening to speak to us about what is happening in Ukraine. But it's very difficult and insulting to our listeners to hear what you are saying. I I I, I think I I'm have to sorry. put that to I'm you. Sorry. Because you are taking us all for fools, aren't you? Because your contention seems to be... Can I, can I just put to you what your contention and what Russia's contention seems to be? It's that Russia invaded Ukraine. And after that point, Ukrainians in response started randomly killing each other, raping each other, their own citizens, in an effort to frame Russia for those crimes. The whole country was in it. All the eyewitnesses that have spoken to journalists were in it, north, south, east and west, independently came together as part of this big lie to frame Russia. And journalists on the ground from America, from France, from the UK, from all over the world, they watched it, they saw this big lie and they reported the big lie. The whole world is in on this big lie, is what Russia is saying. Uh, what I'm trying to say, Sarah, is I am trying to get another point of view on this very difficult issue. If you don't like the message, it's not uh, the wisest way uh, to, to hate the messenger. Uh, you just want, uh, would like to open your eyes to another sources of information, which is, of course, I admit it, it's really difficult under the circumstances because of the overall established fact that mm. Russia is evil of all evils. Uh, if you try to get away from this uh, sort of uh, set piece, then you would discover many things which would uh, really be uncomfortable for many people from Wednesday's drive time. And this is how Sarah finished the interview. Well, that was the Russian ambassador to Ireland, Yuri Filatov, speaking to me a little earlier this afternoon. And I should say that Mr Filatov made a series of claims in that interview about events in Mariupol, Kramatorsk and elsewhere, which have been investigated and dismissed by multiple independent analysts. Back in a bit. Welcome back. 
It's dawn chorus time. Of course, as the Mooney Goes Wild team reminded us, that is not the sound of gentle sweet nothings or cheerful top of the mornings. No, this is scrapping at the highest level. Think he's Dender's Christmas dinner or the turf wars in the doll this week. This, according to Richard Collins, is fight and talk. It seems to me this is the annual avian Klondike gold rush, a great scramble for resources. So what do they do? They sing and they call the roll. It's RIP.ie. Who survived the night? Who didn't? Is there a territory going? It's all about who's who and where they are because if somebody died during the night, there will be a territory waiting vacant, so on and so forth. It's a dynamic time, or do you agree, Niall? Pause for dramatic effect, just in case. Twitchers at dawn, I'll hatch. Oh, absolutely, Richard. One of the most dynamic times of all. And I, I find it amazing to be there, uh, submerged in nature and, and, and enjoying this, this beautiful music washing over us. And then remembering that to the birds, this isn't something necessarily beautiful or joyful at all. It's a really serious business, as you said. Really, they're fighting with each other. That bird song is them hurling abuse left and right through the woodland, uh, trying to say, I'm better than you. I'm stronger than you. I deserve a better territory and more mates than you. And that's what's, uh, that's what's going on with it. And and it really is, it, it hangs on the light, absolutely. People often ask, um, you know, how do the birds know when to wake up or are they woken up by this light? In fact, as far as we can tell, most of the birds are wide awake long before dawn. They sleep a lot less than we do. Most birds, it seems, need only an hour or so asleep in each 24-hour period. So for a lot of that time before dawn, they're just perched there on a branch, just waiting for that first glimmer of light in the sky. And that brings us on to what I think is perhaps the most interesting thing about the dawn chorus is the order in which the birds start to sing. So that beautiful blackbird that Derek played at the top of the programme. And that's one of the first birds to start singing in the dawn chorus. And that's no coincidence. The blackbird is one of the birds that has the largest eyes um, of, of all the songbirds in the woodland. And a bird isn't happy to start singing until there's enough ambient light there to allow it to see danger coming. Because when a bird is singing, it's giving away its location to every predator in the neighbourhood. Every uh, cat or fox or hawk knows precisely where that bird is. So it's not com- confident or comfortable enough to start singing until there's enough light there for so it can see danger approaching. And when you have the dawn chorus and you're there, I, I, just before first light, you hear those birds coming in, you really notice that hierarchy and that running order. It's kind of like the running order of a radio programme, Derek, in many ways, because uh, the birds really do have a set order in which they sing. From Mooney Goes Wild. And don't forget to tune in. Fighting never sounded so beautiful. Sunday with Miriam and a very interesting, nuanced and deeply personal conversation with comedian Patrick Keelty. He talked about growing up at Dundrum, County Down, and how his life had been changed when his father was murdered by loyalist paramilitaries when Patrick was 16. The idea that that knock on the door was going to come to your house, that the police and the parish priest were going to be talking to your mother... You know, I was putting up posters for comic relief. I thought I was in trouble for putting up the posters. And to see my dad's best friend, Brian Cunningham, just sitting there, visibly shaken. And that slow motion of, you better sit down. It was one of those lines that you kind of hear in movies. (laughs) You know, the headmaster says, Patrick, I think you better sit down. And you're going, what's this about? And your dad's been shot. And I remember instinctively, it was just like, playing tennis, your dad's been shot, is he dead? Yes, 
just that bop, bop, bop. And that short conversation kind of completely changing an idyllic life into something completely different. And as he told Miriam, it was only quite recently when he was making documentaries on the loss of other lives in the North that the magnitude of his own loss came back to him. I was the guy who'd sort of dealt with all of this and I'm the guy that tells the jokes about that and I'm the guy who's moved away and has a different life. And I think coming back and talking to a younger generation and I spoke to an amazing young woman called Rona McConville who was the granddaughter of Jean McConville, Mm. uh, one of the disappeared. And... We sat down and we were talking about this idea of trauma jumping a generation. And her grandmother, she didn't know, she didn't live through what happened to her granny. But the fact that she was living with her dad and their family and they had gone through that trauma and then suddenly she was going through trauma, then, whoa, the wheels start ticking here and you think, how am I dealing with this? When I set sit down James Keelty and Milo Keelty to have this chat about what happened to Grand Keelty, am I going to be fully formed here? Am I going to be, what am I going to tell them? How am I going to feel about it? How am I going to feel about the fact that I've now outlived Grand Keelty? You know, they're playing, you know, football in Shauna Keelty Park. You know, the Gaelic Club turned the lights on there. They put new lights in, you know, last year. And my eldest fella, he goes, this is amazing. It never gets dark at Keelty Park. Oh. Now that blindsides you. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, how am I going to break this down here? How am I going to tell him that his dad, his granda didn't die in an accident at work? Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of How do we tell the next generation what we went through, deal with it in a grown-up way without doing this thing which I did for so long, which was, well, sure, Jesus, my generation's job is to turn the the page. You know, we're the Good Friday Agreement generation. We're the people Mm -hmm. that turns that page and hands this page to a new generation. And sure, we do that brilliant Irish thing. Sure, we'll just suck it up. You use little turns of phrases like, almost everybody gets their touch. And that deflection had served him well to an extent because, as he says himself, he's had a good life. But in other ways, he also conceded it might have prevented him from fully dealing with what had happened. For years, I didn't want to talk about this. I didn't want to get into that because people up the road would just go, oh, jeez, here we go. Here's a bit of poor meter. Didn't we all have a bit of that? And everybody there had some of that. The idea of wanting to talk about your own story, God, let's not do that. And sitting down with Brona McConville for her to say, oh, hang on here, you you mightn't have talked this out as much as you think. And then that idea of, oh, hang on here, do I really want to take the foot off the cellar door and see what comes up? So I think little things like that, you know, it's never dark, Achilles Park blindsides you. You think you're fully formed. And yet, on the whole, I feel so lucky to have had my dad for so long and to be able to look at my boys and and tell them that, you know, they're his grandkids. 
Three men were convicted for organising his father's murder, which Keelty said was some comfort. But nothing about what had happened was ever going to be simple. I always used to think post-Good Friday agreements. I was one of these people, you know, why can't we just move on? That idea of, you know, does it really matter? We're all going through what we're going through. We have to try to move this a bit further up the road. And then you realise, because it's a lovely, tidy phrase, let's move on, a lovely, tidy phrase. But the truth isn't tidy and the truth is sometimes messy. And if you look at a lot of the families and stuff that they have gone through, they deserve the same truth that we got, even though we felt it didn't mean much to us. This is why I think sometimes when you look at the bigger politic of Stormont and progress and all of these things that we sometimes beat ourselves up a wee bit too much. Too much. I mean, we made peace. Mm. If you look at what's going on in the world, there's not a huge amount of that actually happens where you have peace and people who wanted each other dead, you know, sit down and they come and they build a, try to build, you know, a future. I think it's it, all of these things are untidy. And we have to try, it's our job maybe to try to navigate through that, you know, as best we can. Patrick Keelty with Miriam on Sunday. Now, the lotto. Statistically, let's face it, not likely. But what would you do if you did win? And how would you react? You know, I'm still, when I think back on it, I think I'm still a bit dazed. You know, you'd never really... If it won, you know, the, the weekly win, you know, your 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 usual lottery, I'd have known what house I was going to buy, what car I was going to get, what holiday I was going to go on and and who was going to get whatever little bit of money. Everybody would have got something, but it would have been, you know, just a few quid to have a nice holiday or something. Yeah. And it would have been spent before I got it in the morning. <laughs> but it was just, it's such a flabbergasting amount of money. I don't think it's ever really bedded in and we never had to deal with it because I got rid of most of it quite quickly. <laughs> That is Frances Connolly, and in 2019, she and her husband Patrick won 130 million euro. And yes, they've given away half to charity. They started with friends and family. So the list was the, you know, the easy bit, the family and friends yeah. bit. So that first night we had about 50 families. We we, we decided we weren't giving to young people because I've, I've 17 nieces and nephews. And I thought, well, I don't want to be responsible for somebody crashing a big car or dying a drug overdose because I've given them loads of money. So we decided we'd give to families and let the families be responsible for what the children got, you know. Good, a good call. That was wise. And by the sounds of it, this former teacher and social worker is nothing if not wise. With an emphasis on sustainability, she set up two charities. Because it was going to be a larger amount of money, I wanted it to do the much as much good as I possibly can with it. And I felt like I needed uh, the input from other people who were maybe a bit more experienced or um, had a bit more knowledge of certain areas than I had. And, and I didn't just want to be dishing it out. You know, you give everybody a fiver and make no difference. How did your family feel about this? Because you've got three daughters, haven't you? Well, when I moan about being tired, because I've never worked so hard in all my life, uh, she said, right, talk to the hand. You could be lying on a beach somewhere doing nothing, not interested. And you know, it's only a joke. They're lovely. They're very, very <laughs> supportive. My mother was the most generous woman I ever met. You know, she'd give you not just her last penny, she'd give you her last drop of blood. But I think it's in the Irish psyche. Do you? I think we're all like that. I genuinely do. Everybody's making a fuss now. 
maybe because of the amount of money. And and I think the charity thing is just, it's about scale. It's, I, I do think everybody does it, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, you might like to think so, but to that extent, I think she might be rare. But they did treat themselves. You've done, as you say, nice things for yourself as well. I mean, it hasn't all been oh, yes. self-sacrifice. What sort of nice things have you done? Uh, Paddy Drive and Aston Martin. But it's a second-hand Aston Martin. Um, <laughs> we've, I've, I've got some nice bits of jewellery, but they're sort of, you know, they're ordinary bits of jewellery and they're just a bit bigger than they were before. Paddy, my, my husband and I did a tour of Scotland for our uh, honeymoon. And last year we were married. Th- we don't normally do anniversaries at all. He he makes every day like a honeymoon for me. So oh, it, I don't really nice. have to. We don't we don't do. <laughs> well, we I do, honestly I get up in the morning and I come down and I no matter what time I get up I wait till he comes down and then he makes me my breakfast every. And we're thirty years married. He's he's just amazing. Uh, but so we don't. I don't really do. You know we don't have to do anniversaries or Valentines or anything because it's just like that all the time. Money can't and, buy that, uh, Francis. Not at all. Not at all. He said on the day that we won it when we did the publicity thing, he said, it's the icing on the cake for us. Our cake's lovely, so it's grand. Um, but we, we decided we would do the same tour, but just stay in nicer hotels, you know. Yeah. So things like that have been lovely. The lovely Frances Connolly with Claire. Meanwhile, if you are still on your Walkman playing music from your teenage years, you are not alone. Here's Pogue's musician and psychologist Courtney Reardon on Drive Time, although she is taking issue with the research. Everything this guy says in conclusion that the songs you hear when you're a teenager are the ones that are going to matter the most to you for your lifetime is completely true. I completely feel that's real, but <laughs> I just the way he got to it was by analyzing Spotify data. So, so you, you know, poo-poo that. So is it I true in your own case, Coach? Thank you. To use the technical terms, <laughs> that research is thoroughly poo-poo. <laughs> so, so. Poo-pooed or not, good music will always be good music. This is something that us old rockers find very encouraging about life is that not only is the music that we loved when we were teenagers still really vital in our lives, it still really has that um, vital visceral effect, basically at an autonomic level at this stage. Like yeah. we, we know the words of songs and we can't remember where the keys are and things like that. So le- but, the, <laughs> but the old bands are still out there rocking and Debbie Harry is still a goddess. Well, let's rock on with Debbie Harry. Let's, give, let's see if this triggers you, Coach. All right. <laughs> she is called your Reardon at the disco looking around seeing if she'll get the shift <laughs> oh I'll get the shift <laughs> you arrogant so and so you but where does that bring and if Coach was down the back of the disco giving the glad eye to Blondie um, some other people had different soundtracks was he French German Belgian maybe and then there's, every time I see Richard Clayton I just hear those same the same piece of music I'm going Where is it? 1980-something? It's French, isn't it? I'm I'm thinking um, prawn cocktails, you know, for the treat. Swiss chalet. You know, this is... It's not not bad. 
there's a there's a, a sort of synthy thing going on behind. Is there like a does it kind of maybe a Casio or something? I know this backwards. Was it the Andre Ryu of the eighties? Okay, big. Go on, Richard. Allez les bleus. Whoa, going for it now. That air, so soft, so feathery. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. <laughs>